Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. the Victim Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who've experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week, we are talking about verbal coercion. My name is Emily Mitchell. My pronouns are she, her, and I am the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center of Central Florida. With me today, I have Nicola Pritchard. Nicola uses she, her pronouns and graduated from the University of Florida with her Bachelor of Science in Psychology. She is one of VSC's advocacy interns and is currently a graduate student in the Masters of Social Work program at the University of Central Florida. In her first year at UCF, Nicola interned at the Children's Advocacy Center in Osceola, working with families of children who had experienced abuse. After graduating, she plans on working to become a licensed clinical social worker and intends to continue working with individuals who have experienced trauma. In her free time, Nicola likes to read, cook, and play the piano. So Nicola, thank you so, so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I also have returning Stephen Wilson. Stephen uses he, him pronouns and is a crisis counselor and Victim Advocate at Victim Service Center of Central Florida. Diversity, inclusivity, social justice, compassion, and respect are values he lives by and what you can expect when joining him for crisis counseling. He obtained a bachelor's and master's degree in social work from the University of Central Florida and continues to build upon his education and skills. He hopes that together, they can rebuild and repair the traumas in their lives. So Stephen, thank you so much for coming back onto the podcast. Always happy to have you. Yes. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you for having me back. I'm really excited to have this conversation. You know, I, we were planning this and I keep coming back to it. Honestly, I think that this is a conversation we all should be having as a society. So just as a very brief introduction, We talk a lot about consent and how it has to be enthusiastic and free of coercion. Coercion can take a lot of different forms. And today we are going to talk specifically about verbal coercion and we'll also go over the different forms of coercion. Common fear responses to trauma, how rape culture normalizes this type of coercion and ways we can combat this culture and heal. So with that, I think that it's important that we start off defining consent. So how would you define consent? Hi, Emily. I'll go ahead and jump in. So 
I would um, here at Victim Service Center, we like to say an, a consent is an enthusiastic yes. I'll take that a, a step further. Um, unequivocal and enthusiastic, not passive, and an active desire. I love that you brought an active, like an active desire, not a passive one. I appreciate that. Nicola, would you want to hop in and add anything to that? Sure. I think um, sometimes the way I think about it is it's not an absence of no, but it's a presence of an enthusiastic yes. Um, Because I think that some people, the concept of consent is more so if it's not a no, then it's a yes. When in reality, it should be the opposite way around, that it has to be that, as Stephen said, active, enthusiastic and ongoing yes. Good point. Absolutely. And, and of course, like consent has to look a lot of different ways, you know, there shouldn't be um, any coercion going on, which we'll be talking about. It doesn't matter the relationship that you have with this person. It has to be continual, like you mentioned, Nicola. And, you know, there's times where you can't consent, right? So you can't consent if you're under the influence of drugs or alcohol, you can't consent if you're under the age of consent. So all those different things, there's there's, we could probably do a whole podcast on consent, but I just wanted to, I appreciate your definitions of it, of it being active. And we talk about enthusiastic. Yes. So do you want to lean in a little bit on that? You know, exactly what we mean by enthusiastic. Yes. In my mind, there should be no, um, there should be no doubt whether or not both participants want to be actively participating in the sexual activity. I think that's a great way to put it simple, clean cut. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes when we talk about consent, we talk about like nonverbal cues. So what are some nonverbal cues that we should be mindful of? I think um, nonverbal cues can go both for giving consent and for not giving consent. I think obviously if someone's like very engaged with whatever activity it is, um, that's nonverbal communication that's you know, they're interested in this, but you still have to have that component of making sure because that's not necessarily enough. Whereas I feel with not giving consent, nonverbal communication can be enough in that setting because some people feel that they can't necessarily say no, or they'll give a variation on no, but the nonverbal communication, you know, like shutting down, kind of disengaging or kind of like keeping to themselves, looking away, getting really quiet. Those are all indications that something's not right. And that's not consent. And you brought up a really good point where you said that someone might feel like they can't say no, or they feel like pressured into saying yes. And that's really what we mean by coercion. So could you define more about coercion and maybe give some examples of physical coercion? I think the way that I conceptualize coercion is the repeated violation of a boundary. So it doesn't have to be, a, it's obviously any violation of a boundary is big, but it can be like small repeated violations that kind of break down at that boundary. Um, and it's just the lack of respect for that boundary. And so I think it can be in the form of physical coercion. Um, the expression of like physical strength sometimes can be enough, you know, showing someone, um, And in some situations earlier in the night, if it's say a date, someone will do something to kind of display their physical strength. And that's, you know, playing on their mind later on in the night because they can see that. So that to me is a form of physical coercion. 
I think that's a great example. And there could also be like displaying of weapons as well. Um, what, what about you, Stephen? Do you have any ex other examples of physical coercion? Just simple touch and groping. Um, it's, you can consider kissing and touching and groping or fondling someone um, physical coercion, even though it's still. Um, no, that's a good point, Stephen. I think it's kind of like engagement's happening and then um, kind of pulling a hand to a certain body part. And then the person is doing a nonverbal cue of shying away. And then they keep putting the hand back to the certain body part over and over again. Nicola, you had a reaction. Did you have something you wanted to jump in on? I think uh, what Stephen's saying is a very good point. It's almost like a variation on grooming. I think that, you know, you can do something. Um, it's like pushing the boundary again. So you maybe are kissing and then you'll touch someone and they say, no, I don't want to do that. But then you touch them again and eventually you're breaking down that boundary. And then once you've moved from that, now you can move on to something else. So it's the progression of violating those boundaries. Definitely. I appreciate you all bringing specific examples too, to kind of show that it's, of course, there's the force, right? Um, that we um, as a society imagine with sexual violence, I think, but it could be these other things too, that might be a little more subtle, but are still like you mentioned, Nicola, which was such a great definition, I think of just this repetitive pushing of a boundary is kind of what we mean by coercion. And on the other side, of course, we, we're talking about the physical one, but what about verbal coercion? What is verbal coercion? So I think of verbal coercion as it's a form of manipulation. It could be, you know, guilt tripping. It could be um, some forms can be bullying. Um, it's just anything that's the verbal pressure to push someone into doing something that they have expressed that they're not comfortable with. So you mentioned guilt tripping, right? Um, and again, just kind of verbal pressure is what it sounds like. Stephen, do you have a similar definition? So I like to break verbal coercion into two separate genres or two categories, if you will. Um, it's what they call positive coercion, like compliments, promises, and they will also fall into like the grooming side of it, right? So you're like buttering up someone in order for them to behave the way that you want and expect them to behave. And then there's the negative verbal persuasion or coercion where you're giving threats, expressing dissatisfaction, and you're a survivor or your victim if you're the perpetrator, and also withdrawing socially from the person to um, make them depend and need on need you a little more. Oh, yeah. So I'm hearing kind of like, and this could be a totally different conversation, but this love bombing kind of approach sometimes to manipulation, where someone's yeah. giving a lot of love to someone, a lot of attention, and then they'll drop out. So then that person does try to seek that approval once again. So yeah, we can see how this is kind of turning in. Um, we're seeing like the overlaps of like intimate partner violence here, essentially. I just, I want to go back to the physical, um, the phys physical coercion, because I think a great example of physical coercion is also isolation, right? Removing the survivor from their support system, from, you know, their family, everything else. So they have less contacts, less support and feel less, um, less safe. And then the, in turn, they rely on their perpetrator. It's basically kind of going back to that power and control wheel that we, we talk about a lot, right? Um, 
Mm-hmm. So essentially coercion is part of that. It's just this way to, again, break down barriers, um, break down boundaries, I should say, and not respect someone's boundaries and saying different things to pressure someone into doing something they're uncomfortable with. What are some other examples, Nicola, of verbal coercion that you can think of? So you brought up like guilt trips, for example. Um, Maybe what could that look like? Or what are some other examples that maybe people normally don't see as manipulative, essentially? I think uh, one that Stephen kind of touched on, um, or at least reminded me of, is I feel like the silent treatment is often used. So when someone says no, at least for a short period of time, they'll just stop talking to them entirely to kind of, you know, create that need and a sense of urgency um, for them to say yes, to kind of get rid of that silence. Um, I feel like that's one of the big ones. Guilt tripping, um, I think that can take a lot of forms. I think often it's that thing of, oh, you don't like me enough. Kind of playing on someone's emotions, making them feel bad about their decision to say no. Um, I think that another one is kind of the use of roles as someone's girlfriend or partner, um, or if it's an anniversary, you know, those are used as excuses for you should be doing this, kind of like the sense of obligation that's created through that. I think there's also often the conversation of, you know, you did it for this other person. So kind of referring back to previous instances of consent. So you did this for this person, but you say you love me. So why wouldn't you do it for me? Kind of calling back to those previous experiences. Um, there's also the thing of it's, you know, only happened once for me before. I've never um, done this with anyone. Kind of making that the other person's problem to solve for them. These are all like so per, like great examples that you're bringing up. Um, yeah, I, I really want to lean in on especially these expectations of certain anniversaries or birthdays or things like that. Um, it's making me think of other examples of types of coercion. Um, for example, gift giving, right, as a form of expectation when a gift is given, when a gift is just a gift. That's the end of that transaction. There's, there doesn't need to be reciprocity or anything like that. Right. Um, so I think that one of the reasons why we're having this conversation, especially is because these forms of coercion, I feel like often go overlooked. So do you think that society does not see verbal coercion as sexual assault. So personally for me, I will say that um, coercion is definitely a part of facilitating sexual assault and rape. Um, as far as general society, I do not think that they they view it as rape or sexual assault. And in my mind, I attribute this to, you know, the things we depict on TV, right? Like when we see those TVs dramatized and there are cases that are that violent and that brutal, but because that's what we have for a perspective of an example of an assault, um, I think oftentimes we don't take into account how coercion can take, take place. So these graphic depictions of rape on TV really um, set the stage for what people think of what rape looks like. And therefore, they don't consider the coercion part of it or the manipulation and blackmail part of it that leads up to it. 
I'm so glad that you brought that up. I think that a big piece of this is we have this script in our mind of this is what sexual assault looks like, right? And when it may look a different way, when we know eight out of 10 times, for example, it's someone that the survivor knows. But when we have this script in our mind that it's a stranger and it's violence and it looks this way, then we may not, as a society, recognize when something is sexual assault, when it is crossing boundaries and things like that. Nicola, why do you think that this is? Why do you, and do you agree? Do you think that society doesn't see verbal coercion as sexual assault? I definitely agree with everything Stephen said. I feel like that's a very good way of explaining it. I think it also speaks to the uh, just world hypothesis that a lot of people have, that no one that loves you would do this to you. And if, you know, no one who cares about you would ever put you in that position. And they, that doesn't fit into the worldview of, you know, rape is this thing that someone who hates you does to you. So that doesn't fit into people's view of rape a lot of the time because of the fact that it is oftentimes someone who's close to you doing these things or someone that you care about, um, which can be extra difficult. And I think there's also this piece of lacking knowledge of fear responses and how that plays into the situation. Um, because a lot of people will say, well, he's not physically keeping you there. Nothing is you know, stopping you from getting up and walking out the door. Nothing's stopping you from saying, no, I don't want to do that. And there's lots of prevention programs that will teach you to be, you know, you just have to be, it's that like posturing thing. You've got to stand up and say no as firmly as possible. But there's a lack of understanding of the fact that some people's bodies don't choose that and they don't get to make that choice. And so because of that piece missing, a lot of people say, well, it wasn't assault because technically, and it's this technicality of you technically said yes, you technically consented. Um, but that again goes back to the lack of knowledge of consent. So it's this huge piece that's missing from this that people end up overlooking and they just see someone who willingly chose to stay somewhere. And essentially they see it as putting themselves in that situation when that's not at all what happens. I'm so glad you brought that up because one of the myths that I go over in my trainings is, um, yes, we'll talk more about this fear response, but essentially one of them is, can be freeze. And again, people may not, I should say people do not choose how they respond to this stimulus, right? This, this fear, um, this trauma response. And so there's this myth that if one does not physically fight this person off, then it wasn't sexual assault, which we're here to say that is not true. Everyone responds to trauma differently. So let's talk about that. You know, if someone is doing the freeze response, um, that is their body protecting themselves. That does not mean that they consented to whatever um, activity happened. So what are some of those common trauma or fear responses that you wanted to bring up? So I think that freeze and fawn are the two that I would bring up as very important. I feel like people are beginning to understand freeze better because of increased education and outreach, and that's becoming more accepted and people are understanding that role in sexual assaults. But I think that fawn and kind of this like tendon befriend response is still very much misunderstood and it's seen as someone giving in and consenting when it's a fear response and it's 
essentially a de-escalation tactic. And a lot of the time, I think people don't see that the alternative and like running away, that's not always an option for people. And sometimes can be seen as escalating, getting up and leaving. Um, and so that response is that person doing what they need to do to placate this person who they see as a threat. Their body has assessed it and seen that as a threat. They do what they need to do to stop the escalation and to get out of that situation safely. But that's misunderstood as people just giving in and deciding to do it and changing their mind. Um, so those who I would say in these situations are the two most important ones to mention. Definitely. And and like you mentioned, those are two. And, and the other ones that are more commonly is the fight or flight, right? That That's how we were kind of taught. And now we're kind of learning a little bit more of fight being the physical fighting and deciding to face head on the, the danger. And then flight being choosing, um, again, not choosing, um, reacting and running away. And then freezing being, um, you know, freezing, right? I think of like deer in the headlights kind of situation. And then fawn though, um, can you give more of a definition of that? Cause I feel like that that one is pretty new. Um, I don't know if you have one, Steven. Yeah, I agree. Um, this isn't something that was fawn wasn't something that was brought up um, at least to my knowledge five years ago. So I don't know that it is as socially um, known. You immediately aim to please to avoid conflict, right? So we're trying to avoid a scenario from happening. So if someone's already acting aggressively or displaying um, aggressive behaviors and they are coming on to you aggressively, um, you know, that may be a response that is needed to get you out of that situation. And it's not that you have chosen that situation. It's the safest way for you to get through that situation. Absolutely. I think that that's a great way to explain it. And we're doing a lot more research on it. And I'm really glad that that's becoming more common as people start to understand these really common fear responses. And again, things that we don't choose, it's our body kind of responding to danger in the way that it can keep itself safe. Um, so Nicola, can you talk a little bit about how a survivor can go into a trauma response once their first no has been ignored or disrespected? So I think that what's also important to note about these situations is that relationship that people often have with the perpetrator, because as that first no is ignored, that first of all is confusing because this person that you care about, you've just expressed a boundary to them and they've completely ignored it. So a lot of that initial no that's ignored is kind of the shock value to the body of, I don't understand what's happening. And it can be hard to assess for threat when you're confused about, you know, this person cares about me, but then here's a situation that's directly in contrast with that idea. Um, so a lot of the time that also plays into why they don't just get up and leave because you're not even sure if something's happening yet because that's kind of the beginning. And then from there, it's an escalation. But as that first no happens, that's the start of the trauma response and the fear response to this. And I think, you know, that first no happens and the person's assessing. And that's when the body starts to assess for this threat. The second no, and often a lot of the times the person will go through the tactic. So it's not just the same tactic the whole time. So they'll start with, you know, you should do this for me because 
we're in a relationship and you say no and then now this person's not listening to that then next is yeah but i thought you cared about me so then the body's reacting to that and taking in that information and the threat is starting to build and so then more fear is kind of entering the situation because then when you say no it's ignored again and so your body's starting to learn i'm saying no but this isn't getting a response and then as that escalates to but i you did that with him so why won't you do that with me it can start to feel more aggressive and then that's when your body can kick into what fear response am i going to choose but the person doesn't get to choose that that's their own biological body choosing that for them and so as that situation progresses it can feel like an escalation to the survivor even if people on the outside would say i don't understand why you stayed for the whole thing they're reacting to this progression of escalating verbal pressure and the fear response is going through that entire beginning portion because that's really where this pressure is happening once the person eventually is worn down or feels like they have to because it's escalating to a point that they're not comfortable with and then the act occurs where they have they felt like they had to do it and they did it people will see that as the only part of the assault but there's this whole beginning section with all of these dynamics of control and pressure that are ignored in thinking about the fear response there's a whole preamble to this act of assault well stated nicola yeah i think that that was such a great way of explaining it and i wonder i have a follow-up question for you um let's say it's a long-term relationship and this kind of behavior started maybe at the beginning, right? Where they're like pushing, 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 and then, okay. Right. Um, pushing, 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 I should say. And then the assault happens is how I should put it. Um, do you think that now as the verbal coercion later on in the relationship, the fear response can maybe happen a little quicker or like faster almost in, in the sense that, now the the person doesn't have to do so many steps because the the fear response happens quicker i think that's definitely a possibility for some people because the initial times that those happen a lot of the time people are trying to figure out if it's even happening so there's that sense of confusion and shock about the fact that they're in that situation and whether they're in that situation at all but as that goes on, the body starts to recognize those cues. So when the first instance of that happens or something that even sounds similar, it can be a trigger for the body to have that fear response. And so it could happen quicker. So they don't have to have that lead up of, I don't understand what's happening. This person is supposed to care about me. It's pushing me to something I don't want to do. It's recognized by the body. So they'll have a faster fear response. The more the behavior is repeated, the neurons in the brain create a synapsis, making it more of a direct and um, efficient response. Definitely. Yeah, that's kind of I'm glad that I made sense. <laughs> Two smart people obviously are on this call, so they, they understood. Um, so I appreciate that. Yeah. And, and, you know, going off of that, you know, do you think that cases of sexual assault that involve verbal coercion where there may have been a verbal yes given after badgering for sex, for example, are these maybe not seen as serious as other cases of sexual assault? I think definitely. I think that victim blaming plays a role in that. I think that 
it's this thing of the technicality of it. So they technically gave in and that invokes victim blaming in a lot of people because people who haven't been in that situation or maybe don't understand the dynamics of that will look at this and say, but you could have avoided it. And although that's not true, they'll see that as less serious than someone who, those cases that Stephen was talking about that you see in the media, someone who didn't physically have a choice, even though, as we know, they didn't physically have a choice either. The way that it's understood, people will see that as less serious because to them, you played a role. I agree, Nicola. It's, it's all about education, you know, and, you know, when we're in high school or middle school, we get sexual wellness classes and things like that, where we learn about sexual health, but sexual assault and rape is not talked about and discussed. And like you were saying, like, because of the way rapes and sexual assaults are depicted on TV, when it's not violent, brutal, or like overly aggressive, it's, I don't feel that it is taken as seriously, especially if the, the survivor didn't show a display act of trying to fight back or some way of stopping it or preventing it. Um, and then also like the survivor themselves can feel invalidated and that their story isn't real because, you know, they don't understand their own trauma response. My body shut down. I didn't fight them off, you know, so they, they can begin to self-blame as well as like general society who doesn't understand the trauma responses because once again, because of the way that they've learned about sexual assault and rape. So I do think that um, assaults that are used with verbal coercion and lack a lot of violence and physical violence are unfortunately seen as less valid and um, is seen less valid either by society or the, the, the survivor themselves. I'm really glad that you brought up that as well, because as you know, sexual violence is one of the most underreported crimes ever. And this can definitely, you know, we're seeing how this rape culture that we've lived in is invalidating people's experiences of being violated and not having their boundaries respected. So do you think that the reason when, because society tells us verbal coercive cases of sexual violence are not seen as serious or are not even maybe even recognized as all at all as sexual assault. Do you think that this could be a reason why survivors choose not to report? And why do you think that is? Absolutely, I do. Um, and once again, it's the way it's depicted, two extremes, right? There's one who fawns or freezes and shuts down and there, there's not a whole lot of violence. And then there's the brutally assaulted woman or male who has the, the really the really physical assault. And because of those two extremes, we don't see the assaults that happen in between that. I, yeah, and I think that maybe a survivor might be kind of, um, since they may not even know like, oh, what happened to me was assault. And so they try maybe are too afraid to come forward about it or don't even know if what happened to them, because we're not taught what consent is in our culture, they don't even realize that their consent may have been violated, or they may feel that, well, what happened wasn't what I typically identify as sexual assault, and therefore um, it's not bad enough to report, or people aren't gonna believe me anyway, or they're gonna blame me for it because I, um, in their mind, might have consented, but I really didn't 
feel like I can, do you know what I mean? So I feel like yeah. that could definitely play as to why a lot of survivors may not report. Um, how do you think that this could possibly affect a survivor's healing journey? I think that it complicates it and healing is complicated enough as it is. It's not simple for anyone and it's not this linear process, but I think that it adds a layer of distrust even with yourself for some survivors. So because you may have given in or technically said yes, it's this thing of feeling betrayed by your body. So not only were you betrayed by this other person, but your own body betrayed you and you know, gave into that situation when even though that's not a fair assumption to make about yourself and the assessment is more so your body was trying to protect you and that can be hard to reconcile because to some people you put yourself in danger but it was to avoid a greater danger but that can be a hard thing to come to terms with um and it's hard to rebuild that trust with yourself and even to feel like you can trust your internal cues and gut feelings because you may have had a gut feeling, but you yourself didn't act in accordance with that. So that feels like you weren't like true to yourself and some publications will say, you know, stay true to yourself, but that's not the case at all. But I think that that can be hard to cope with because it's just this feeling of betrayal from all angles. In addition to that too, again, just this idea of is what happened to me even considered sexual violence and just like kind of starting to process of you know do you think that maybe a client might even be in denial in the sense that can I even call myself a survivor right that could be piece to it too I think that there is just really complicated it's such a complicated thing and I can see why that could definitely affect a survivor's healing journey um the sad part for me is if if a client or a survivor is invalidating themselves and invalidating their own story, um, you're not acknowledging what's happened and what's been done, and therefore you're not able to begin your healing journey, right? Like you can't you can't heal something that you're not acknowledging has been damaged. I think that's such a great way of putting it. Um, exactly. I think that it's very normal response to trauma is denying it and things like that. Um, and at the same time, I think that uh, you're right. I think in order to heal from something, we do need to kind of um, acknowledge it, like you mentioned. Um, and that's why I'm really glad that we're having this discussion because I think that we, uh, I think it's super important to validate all um, survivors and all experiences and honor that and just know at the end of the day, you're an expert for your story and expert in your healing. And if you feel like a line has been crossed, it has, um, that that's really where enthusiastic consent comes into play. Right. Um, there should be no doubt, like you said, Nicola, um, if you think that there was a line that was crossed, there, there was a line that was crossed and you deserve support and you deserve, um, to heal from that. Um, Nicola, it looks like you want to jump in. I do. I was going to say also, I think that sometimes, um, the understandable reactions that survivors can have about the sexual assaults, they may feel like they're not allowed to have them or they're not allowed to receive services because they don't even know if they can say they were assaulted. And a lot of people who were coerced into doing things will use very minimizing language and say, 
you know, I, I had unwanted sexual activity. They won't call it assault. And it's like a linguistic cue that they feel like they're not allowed to call it that, or they'll qualify it with, this happened to me, but it wasn't rape. So I know it's not that bad, even though it is that bad, but they feel like they have to justify it to people to make sure that other people know that they're also minimizing it to kind of fit that narrative. And I think that some survivors have some feelings that may seem insane. Some survivors feel like they almost wish the assault was worse, which sounds ridiculous and, you know, terrible. And they feel like, you know, I'm terrible for thinking that I wish I was assaulted worse, but it's more so a reflection of the fact that if it was worse and if it was this brutal attack, like Stephen was mentioning, people would accept it more, even though, you know, as we know, there's a lack of acceptance anywhere. But there's a lot of guilt that comes with this feeling of, you know, I wish my assault was worse so that they could have that acceptance and validation that, you know, what happened to them was bad and that it makes sense that they're feeling like the anger and the grief and all of the feelings that come with sexual assault. I agree, Nicola. My feelings would be more valid if my assault was more violent or, yeah. That is such a powerful statement. I feel, um, sorry, Stephen, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. I, that, that was, I was, no, I was just agreeing with Nicola. That it's like, if you're, if it's not a violent assault, then you, it seems that your feeling shouldn't be as valid as someone who did go through a very violent assault. And that's not the case at all, because we still have those feelings and emotions, whether we validate them or not. Yeah, I think that that's such an important piece to it. You know, your emotions are your emotions, your experience is your experience, and you deserve support and you deserve to heal um, if if you feel like a boundary was crossed, right? And trust that gut feeling. I think that's so such a powerful point that you brought up, Nicola. It's really heartbreaking, honestly, is that it's like we put pressure on survivors um, in their healing journey in general, there's so much pressure on that of this is how you're supposed to feel. And this is what it's supposed to look like and, and all that stuff. And it's just kind of snowballs into the, these feelings of guilt and, and all these other feelings of shame when it comes to their experience and they're all valid and they're just your emotions and, and you're, you're allowed to feel how you feel. Um, you know, we talk a lot about rape culture on this podcast. It's an important topic, so we should be talking about it a lot. And one of the aspects of rape culture is strict gender roles, such as men being dominant and sexually aggressive. Going off of that, I think that we can agree that we link, you know, as a society, we could link a man's value by their sexuality. So link their value to their sexuality. For example, concepts like scoring and adding a notch on your belt are linked to their worth. Furthermore, it seems society puts a lot of pressure on men when it comes to sex, like being able to perform or being able to perform at long intervals, like things like that. So essentially toxic masculinity is what I'm saying. So with all that being said, do you think that this contributes to the use of verbal coercion, the refusal to understand what an enthusiastic yes looks like and ultimately not respecting boundaries. I think it definitely contributes to it. Um, I think that you can see a lot of that reflected in the specific 
techniques that are used in the comments that are made to survivors is very focused on you know even in saying like oh well you know my girlfriend like you should do this for me that comes from like that thing of this is what i'm supposed to be receiving um in this role or even as a man um that's kind of like the thing that's communicated to survivors but that's the foundation of that um so i think that it contributes to it but in a way it's the base of where these things come from so you can't really separate the two in a way that makes a lot of sense and i'm wondering if this also could contribute and affect male survivors of sexual assault right so for example how is the idea of men always wanting sex maybe damaging for male survivors right does it make them question if what happened to them was sexual violence or i was supposed to want this and but it was forced upon me you know yes i think um definitely so because i think you know for men in general sexual assault can be a very different experience and in terms of like how to heal from that and there's different dynamics that go into that um because of this you know, myth that you're saying that men should always want sex and um, people kind of just don't see it as as bad or even the physiological response of, you know, getting an erection can be seen as like, oh, but he consented. Um, and I think with verbal coercion specifically, because it's also not violence and it speaks to what Stephen was saying earlier, it's not this like violence assault and then added with the idea that men should always want sex it's a situation where the survivor themselves can feel like, was I even assaulted? Which is what other survivors feel anyway, but it's this added thing of, are they even allowed to say that they didn't want sex in the first place? Even to get to the point of saying, I had to do something I didn't want to do. There's like an added step of having to admit that they didn't want sex in that situation, which can be difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to kind of uplift that once again, like we're talking a lot about like, um, you know, coercion and things like that. And, and I always like to uplift that men are also survivors of sexual violence. And, and I appreciate that you bringing in this, this other kind of viewpoint as well, as far as always like to mention that toxic masculinity affects everyone, essentially. And I like what you said, which is, am I even allowed to be a victim or call myself a survivor? I think that that's super powerful. I think toxic masculinity um, shows itself in many different ways. Um, I find that men sometimes struggle a little bit more when they've been a victim of a crime, especially when it comes to like coercion, manipulation and sexual assault. And I contribute this or I attribute this to the patriarchal power imbalances between genders. So, for example, men aren't used to being um, a victim of crime because oftentimes they are the perpetrators of crime. And when, say, a female is the perpetrator and the male is the victim, they have a really hard time coming, accepting that reality and acknowledging those power imbalances that they were once on top of. Absolutely. I think it goes back to kind of what you said earlier, again, where um, this idea of this is what sexual assault looks like. So if it's not fitting the script that we were taught, then we get confused and we may not call it what it is, you know? Um, so I appreciate you bringing that into it. And with that, is there a way that we can combat this? You know, we're seeing this like, you know, toxic masculinity. We're seeing 
you know, rape culture in general, what are, is there any way that we can like do something um, to kind of help combat this? I think it's important that um, like, right, we all kind of know rape culture is out there, but there's also consent culture out there. And I think we should really lean into that a little bit more. Um, it's, and it, consent goes far beyond just like sex, right? Like sharing a photo of friends, you know, things like that. So I do think if we lean a little bit more into consent culture and teach more about that in schools and parents as well, teaching more about consent um, and also breaking down some gender norms. And luckily, I think society has already began that slow process and work of breaking down some of those gender norms. I completely agree. I think that we have come a long way and we have a lot of ways to go, but I love that you brought up consent culture. I love that where we feel safe and our consent is respected and we respect other people's consent and boundaries and all that stuff. And just starting that early and letting people know that, you know, boundaries are good and they're a way to communicate. This is how to keep me safe. This is how to keep me, this is how to love me and all that. And then just respecting all of that. And, you know, Nicola, you brought up something where, you know, women can also be perpetrators of sexual violence, of course. Um, So what are some examples maybe of verbal coercion that a woman might say that we may not realize as a society that it's actually a manipulative tactic? I think that it's very similar across perpetrators. No matter the gender, it'll just be adjusted slightly, I think the themes are essentially the same, Um, you know, creating that sense of guilt or obligation. It'll just be said maybe in a different way or using different roles. But I think that the actual perpetrator behavior and techniques are very similar. I agree, Nicola. And I'll also add that um, I think one of the most effective ways a female perpetrator can coerce a male is by emasculating them and tying that to sex. That's a really good point. And I appreciate that you brought up that, um, you know, it could look pretty similar. And I agree. I think that um, maybe we're just not recognizing it because, again, it's not the script of usually it's a man who is the, the perpetrator. But again, women could say things, of course, just like what men could say. We're like, I thought you loved me. Um, you know, you're my fill in the blank. So, you know, it's been so long or like, um, we're married or, or things like that, or, you know, am I not pretty enough? You know, things like that can, can be it. Um, what are, I kind of like threw out a lot of different examples, um, but for people out there, just so that they can see kind of red flags of this verbal coercion, are there any kind of examples of these red flags that you wanted to to kind of highlight because again i think a lot of this is really just society not seeing oh this is coercive and manipulative so what are some maybe red flags that you wanted to uplift i think what underlies a lot of these red flag kind of statements is making the perpetrator's feelings the survivor's responsibility so anything that's, you know, you're making me feel bad about myself, you're making me feel, you know, less than as a man or you, whoever it is, um, that makes it the survivor's responsibility to fix that. And so they become the problem. So I think that anything that's, 
you know, if you set a boundary and that's not respected and you have those feelings of guilt and responsibility for this other person's feelings, I think that that's the biggest red flag to look for. I think that's such a great way to put it. Steven, did you want to hop in on that? I would add any time that there's a power imbalance. Um, that, that is a red flag for me. Any, and especially if it's being enforced. Yeah. And there's a lot of different kinds of power imbalances, right? So can you give some examples of some? Absolutely. So, um, so say your supervisor is making passes at you. Um, you know, she, that person has, um, it's an, it's an, it's a power imbalance because that is your superior. Um, and so therefore you may have a hesitance to say no or to report that person. I think that's such a good point. Or just age can also be one too. Um, grade level can be a power imbalance, um, lots of different things. So I appreciate you bringing that up. I think that another thing to look out for in terms of red flags is somebody doing something for you that you have consented to, but it's kind of like based on the survivor's experience of pleasure, but using that as a reason to receive something in return. So someone who's, you know, doing things for you and then kind of being like, okay, but what about me? That's something to look out for because it's great and all that they wanted to do that for you, but what is the intent? If the intent is just to get something back from you, then that's leading into the coercion. Yeah, it's kind of going back to gift giving, but I like that how you framed it because um, it doesn't have to be a physical gift in that sense um, where there's expectations to return the favor or things like that. That is definitely a red flag. I'm really glad that you brought that up too. Um, And I know we've been talking a lot about heterosexual relationships in this and I just want to uplift that, of course, sexual assault can happen to anyone, regardless of gender, um, identity, anything like that, sexual orientation. It does not discriminate by any means. Um, So what are some other like, you know, we talk about like power dynamic and stuff like that. Are there specific manipulative tactics that can happen within like the LGBTQ plus community or certain pressures or expectations? So we do know that sexual assaults do happen in the LGBTQ community. And in fact, it happens at higher rates. And one of the interesting facts that I found is um, lesbians actually had higher assault rates. Um, In the research, it didn't say why there there were higher um, assault rates. But in my mind, I can justify this with fetishization of lesbians and straight culture. And I I do think that those little things like that can contribute to rape culture. Definitely. And do you think that also um, there could be a specific kind of like manipulation of like, um, do this for me or I can out you or just kind of that power dynamic too? Absolutely. Sometimes um, not being out or being out can be a dangerous situation. And if you're with a partner um, who is out and doesn't have any issues with that and say you are not out and your family has a big issue with it, that can create a big safety concern for you if you are pushed out of the closet. And so that that can absolutely be used as a way of coercing someone to have sex or do other duties. Definitely. Thank you, Stephen. I appreciate you kind of shedding some light onto that. Um, So I think, you know, as we're coming to the end of this conversation, 
people listening may be reflecting on ways that they may have pressured their partners in the past. So what would you say to them? I would say, Dom, to look look at more than just your own wants, needs, and feelings. Do not ask your partner or your significant other what their wants, needs, and feelings are about the situation as well. And that goes beyond just like consent for sex. But I think by having that, that conversation before having sex will set the stage for a lot of other conversations around consent, sex, and exploration in the bedroom as well. I think everything that Stephen said is good. I think that's what I would say as well. Um, just, you know, improving on this behavior in the future is what I think the goal would be. And I think that acknowledging this for what it is, is the first step in that and kind of seeing how, yes, there may be a lack of education because of the way that the world sees consent currently, but that doesn't mean that you can't do better as an individual and you can't implement these ideas yourself to improve upon this. And I think that you know, having those conversations with people you may feel that you pressured in the past is also important. Going back and, you know, validating for them that you realize that that wasn't okay. And, you know, that you should not have put them in that position, I think is very important as well and could be potentially helpful for their healing process. Definitely. And then um, I, I like that you said that, uh, you know, the the important thing is, it's just changing the behaviors and, and first and foremost, kind of acknowledging that this pressured thing is, um, it's not okay. And like, we were, we're in this culture that's kind of saying that it's okay, but it's not. And so, um, acknowledging that is definitely the first step. And then, um, you're also in control of your behaviors and, um, and yeah, and I think that it's really courageous of a person to change their behaviors. Steven, did you have something you wanted to add? Yeah, I just, I wanted to say that um, consent can be revoked at any time. And just because you consent to having sex, say vaginal sex, it doesn't mean that you consent to everything else that can fall underneath the sexual wheelhouse. So because you consent to having oral sex, it doesn't mean that you consent to having vaginal sex. Just because you consent to vaginal sex doesn't mean you consent to anal sex. So through each of those steps, there should be a conversation and acknowledgement. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yes, there should be no surprises. Everything should be informed and talked about and asked, right? There should be no assumptions. I, I appreciate that, Stephen. And going off of that, there could be people listening that um, may are starting to realize that, oh, I did experience verbal coercion or, or things like that. So what would you say to survivors who experience this verbal coercion and are not sure what to do? I think first and foremost would be to feel like that's valid. I want survivors to know that what happened to you was wrong. And I feel like there's, you know, if you do a Google search for verbal coercion, there's an increase in materials that are kind of made for survivors to understand that, but there's still much less than any other form of perpetrator behavior in sexual assault. And so I think that even looking for materials online can be a very frustrating and invalidating process for survivors. So I think that, you know, putting this message out there of what happened to you was bad, you did not consent, um, you're allowed to have 
any feelings that you have about it, the grief and the anger and anything that you feel like you're not allowed to feel, you're allowed to feel that and you're allowed to seek help and get services um, because what happened to you is a valid form of sexual assault and you deserve to heal from that and feel like your feelings are accepted as understandable and rational in this situation. And I think a lot of survivors can feel like they are crazy and overdramatic, but they're not crazy and they're not overdramatic and they've been through something traumatic. So that's what I would want them to know. I love that. I really appreciate that, Nicola. Um, and you mentioned that, you know, researching um, verbal coercion, there's some stuff out there. And I know that you found something called the consent toolkit. So I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about it and ways that people can find it. Yes, I love that consent toolkit because it's probably one of the best um, resources out there that actually talks about verbal coercion. Um, and there's also some stuff in there about fear responses. And I think that it does a great job of discussing that and giving examples of situations where this might occur that can help people to maybe recognize situations that they've been in. Um, and I think its explanation of consent is great and it gives examples of what's not consent, which can be helpful too, but it's a great resource. I think that it can be helpful for people to kind of validate that, you know, they didn't give consent. Sometimes just even having that validates if you can be very helpful and powerful. Definitely. And how can someone find this consent toolkit? So how you find it is it's from the Rape and Sexual Assault Research and Advocacy website, rasara.org, um, and they have a sexual consent toolkit. Um, the way I found it was I googled um, consent toolkit, and I think that it was like the second one that popped up. Um, and you can get a PDF version that has everything in one place for you. That's awesome. And I think I'll put it in the description too. So if people are interested in like checking it out, definitely. Um, so I appreciate that. And thank you both so much for like this great conversation. Um, I think it's a great place to kind of sign off. But before I do, is there anything else that you'd like to say or bring up that we may not have mentioned um, before we say goodbye? I would just like to say anyone who has had those boundaries crossed, I encourage you to seek out help. Um, the Victim Service Center here in Central Florida, we serve the Tri-County area with uh, Seminole, Orange, and Osceola County. And every county has a local rape crisis center as well. So feel free to reach out and see what services they offer. And one of the services we offer here at VSC is the Passion Flower Project, which Nicola and I um, are the facilitators for. I'm so glad you brought that up, Stephen, because I know that we're going to be talking about that particular support group, but um, on the podcast, actually. So we'll have a future episode about it. So people who are listening um, look forward to it. But um, can you tell me just like a little bit about it? So uh, people meet and we and they go in the garden and things like that or? Absolutely. So it is a therapy support group that meets in the northeast corner of the parking lot of Victim Service Center. Um, it's a butterfly garden where we learn to process our trauma and traumatic experiences. Um, the current season is CBT. So what CBT is, is cognitive behavioral therapy, where we learn how our thoughts influence our feelings and how our feelings influence our behaviors. And sometimes those negative thoughts can influence a lot more than just what happens internally. Um, but yeah. 
the Passion Flower meets every other Thursday, um, twice a month. Awesome. And we'll learn a lot about it. Oh, I love it. <laughs> um, I love it. I love that. Um, I love seeing it every time I come in uh, to work. I'm always like, oh, such a beautiful garden. And we'll talk a little bit more about it on our podcast. So stay tuned. Um, but is there anything you wanted to say, Nicola, before we sign off? Yes, I think um, for people listening, the takeaway that I feel like is important to mention is also for, you know, not people who have experiences or feel like they have been the perpetrators in these situations is anyone else. I think that it's important to mention if someone comes to you and says that they've experienced this to not minimize it and not, you know, kind of focus on like, oh, well, it was a gray area and, you know, make excuses because a lot of the time, um, because of the nature of it, the people who the survivors can turn to are often mutual friends of the perpetrator. And I think that it's important to mention, you know, don't minimize that person's experience and, you know, validate that. And even if you may have some complicated feelings about it because you know this person who they're saying did this, you may not know that person in this context. And so you don't know what they're like when they're in that situation. And so I think it's important to make people feel supported and validated. And so I think that's that's one takeaway that people who have no experience with this kind of form of sexual violence um, can take away from this. And I think it's also important to mention, even for agencies, um, I think that a lot of, you know, even paperwork can reflect very outdated ideas about sexual coercion and can focus on this kind of positive spin on, you know, be assertive. And I think it's important for agencies to also make updates and keep with that to not alienate clients who may have experienced this form of sexual violence or, you know, read that and feel like they can't receive services here because it doesn't reflect their experience. I love that. I think that that is a wonderful place to sign off. And, you know, we had a question earlier of how can we combat rape culture? And I think being a supporter in that sense, and as far as like an agency or as an individual for survivors who come forward and share um, is definitely an amazing way we can combat rape culture. I have one last thing that I forgot to say. I think that also an important part of this is having conversations with perpetrators, but not by the survivors, but by other people in their lives. Because of, as I mentioned, you know, it's often a mutual friend. And even if it's not, I think that particularly men can play a huge role in preventing coercion and this kind of sexual violence by listening to the way that their friends talk about their sexual encounters and calling them out for this behavior and, you know, letting them know that that's not okay. Or, you know, when they explain things, having those conversations with the people who are doing it is one of the best ways to prevent them doing that in the future and to prevent future sexual assaults. Yeah, I completely agree, Nicola. That's, you know, being an active bystander is such an amazing thing. you know, power that we have. And I think that I agree. I think, um, you know, whenever we find ourselves um, in a place of power and we can use our voice to protect those who may not uh, be able to protect themselves, that's such a powerful tool that we all have. And it's a way that we can help end, you know, sexual violence. So I appreciate that. So I think that's a great place to sign off. So thank you for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. The VSA is a nonprofit organization that provides free 
confidential counseling services to survivors of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear. You are not alone. And thank you so, so much, Stephen and Nicola, for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you.